Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Ed Ayers. Each week, Brian, Joanne Freeman, Nathan Colley, and I, all historians, explore a topic that's been in the news. Today, we're introducing a new format for Backstory, the long-form interview. This is when one of us has an extended conversation with a prominent political figure, writer, or newsmaker. Our guest this week is Carl Rove, probably the most influential political strategist of his generation. Rove was the architect of George W. Bush's successful campaigns for governor of Texas in the 1990s. Then he ran Bush's two presidential campaigns and served as a senior White House advisor from 2000 to 2007. A Texas reporter who covered Rove actually called him Bush's brain. But George W. Bush had his own nickname for his advisor, Turd Blossom. Well, he actually had two, Boy Genius and Turd Blossom. And Turd Blossom was when he knew I was right and he didn't want to admit it. Then I would be Turd Blossom. (laughs) But it's a term of endearment if you live in Texas. I mean, that's the flower that comes up in the middle of the cow patty in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Little rain, little fertilizer, and up it pops. In addition to his work for Bush, Karl Rove has advised more than 75 Republican candidates for the U.S. Senate, Congress, and gubernatorial races across the U.S. He's also one of the Republican Party's most powerful fundraisers. Karl Rove's influence on politics and the modern Republican Party is simply hard to exaggerate. Rove had a spectacular entrance into politics in high school in Utah. He ran for president of the student senate. A self-described nerd who wore a pocket protector and carried a briefcase, he was a long-shot candidate. But the young Carl figured out how to turn his weakness into a weapon. We borrowed a Volkswagen convertible bug and got the captain of the basketball team with a driver's hat to drive it and then got the two very attractive senior girls to be on either side of the nerd. And we, the shop teacher allowed us to turn a blind eye so we could open up the big doors that led into the shop, and then the big doors that led from the shop to the main hallway. We rolled the Volkswagen, unbeknownst to the principal, down the hallway. So when I'm introduced to speak, we throw open the doors to the gymnasium, turn on the car, and I am driven onto the floor of the basketball arena, <laughs> surrounded by two attractive girls with the captain of the basketball team in front, uh, behind the wheel. Big John Larson, I think Principal Larson has now passed, but he was enormous. I mean, he was a big man, and you could just see the seething anger of Principal <laughs> Larson as I'm driven on the floor. But the place is going wild. I'll bet. And I had cool posters besides that and one. So that's how he got his start in politics, and he's just never looked back. But I was also eager to talk to Karl Rove because he's a sharp-eyed student of American history. Rove says history has always guided his political strategy because it shows what works. One of Rove's political heroes is the country's 25th president, Republican William McKinley. The Ohio Republican was elected in 1896, beating populist-turned-Democrat William Jennings Bryan. McKinley won re-election four years later, 
before being assassinated by an anarchist in 1901. Rove argues that the 1896 election was a watershed for the Republican Party. In 2015, he published The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. I got to tell you, I read this book and I learned a lot about late 19th century politics in America. Rove thinks McKinley and the election of 1896 offer important lessons for both parties. I asked him why. Well, I did not set out to write something about the election of 1896 to make it look like today, but the era uh, leading into the 1896 election is as broken as American politics is today, if not worse. We have in the five elections leading into 1896, five presidential elections, two of them are won by somebody who gets a minority of the popular vote but an electoral college majority. We have two years of Republican president, Senate, and House, two years of a Democratic president, Senate, and House, and 20 years of divided government where nothing gets done because these men are not only – deeply partisan in their views and in their vision for the future of the country, Democrats and Republicans. But they're also, in many respects, still fighting the Civil War. And so the ugliness and the anger and the bitterness and the division of the country during that period is jaw-droppingly astonishing. Ugly things are said on the floor of the House and the Senate routinely. When the Republicans take control of the House in 1890, the Democrats say that when, we, when we're sworn in in March of 1891 and then sit as the Congress begins its session in the fall of 1891, we're not going to allow a single bill to be brought up on the floor of the House of Representatives. We'll deny the House a quorum to conduct business. Now, now think about that. That's not – we're going to shut down the government unless you repeal Obamacare. <laughs> it is literally, we don't care what you want to try and do. We're going to confound you. You described why the conditions of 1896 were similar to some of those conditions today. I want you to make the case that McKinley himself was a great president. Well, he's a unifier. He saw that the country was changing and the country was becoming more diverse and he was a Republican and he wanted the success of the Republican Party. But the Republican Party in the North was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and the country was becoming increasingly Catholic, and the sources of immigration were no longer England, Scotland, Wales, and Germany. Now we are having you know, you know, Ukrainian wheat farmers and Spanish tanners and Irish, you know, Italian ceramic makers and Greek fishermen, and so the, the nature of the immigration that was coming to the country was very diverse. And he understood that he needed to modernize the Republican Party in order to make it the party of the working man and of the and, and welcoming to all these new immigrants who were coming into the country. He also knew that he had to have a message that united the country. The country was bitterly divided and, and, and getting only worse so. I mean, William Jennings Bryan is an admirable man in many respects, but you read his speeches and they are angry and vicious and mean and the country is divided between those that have wealth and those that do not, between the bondmen of Wall Street and the hardworking farmers of the West. And McKinley, he's losing the campaign in July and August, and it's only in September when he finds his voice and begins to talk about the economic issues facing the country in a way that appeals to the working man that he turns around the campaign by saying the working man deserves a full day's wage for a full day's work. He deserves to have a currency that will buy him a full loaf of bread, not a half a loaf of bread. Carl, You pretty much argue that one of the elements of McKinley's greatness was 
bringing the country back together after it had been deeply divided. Of course, it, that you know, the most divided moment was the Civil War itself, but politics for 20, 30 years revolved around the divisions of the Civil War. I wonder if you could write us a short verbal memo right now about how a president could begin to unite the country with, with some specifics. Well, look, I think it depends upon the attitude of the president and the language of the president and whether that president emphasizes bringing the country together in a fundamental way. And you have to do it not only by words but by actions. But even the symbolic actions matter a great deal. And you may remember from the book, one of the most powerful moments of the campaign occurs on October 9th of 1896, and that is the Civil War veteran, Major McKinley, enters the war in 1861 as an 18-year-old private, ends the war as a 22-year-old major after receiving three battlefield commissions for unspeakable bravery. Well, in October, he does a first in American politics. 2,000 Confederate veterans of the Civil War, of the Shenandoah Valley campaigns where he was – these were the guys on the opposite ends of the rifle shooting at him while he was shooting at them. 2,000 of them arrive in Canton, Ohio. They're met by the um, Grand Army of the Republic with an honor guard. This is the Northern Union Veteran Organization. They form up men in gray uniforms from the Confederates, men in blue who are Union War veterans. And they march up Market Street towards McKinley's home to patriotic music, and the, and the streets are lined by thousands of the people, many of them openly weeping at the sight of blue and gray together. This has never been seen in the country before. Here are Confederate veterans and Union veterans marching together in common cause, and people are literally weeping at the sight. They show up in front of McKinley's home. McKinley, I've read a lot of his speeches. And you can tell when he's prepared a speech and it's, you know, sort of dry and formularic when Mm -hmm. the things that he says are personal. And this is deeply personal. It's very short. And he says, patriotism is not bound by state or class or sectional lines. We are a reunited country. We have but one flag. Sectionalism was surrendered at Appomattox. He tells him, if we ever have to fight again, and God forbid that we do, we shall fight together as brothers under a common flag. And then he spends several, you know, the better part of several hours shaking hands as these 2,000 Confederate veterans walk across his front porch and shake hands with Major McKinley. And the nation sees this and is in awe because here's a man who is seeking to unite the country. And remember, he's also the first Republican or Democratic presidential candidate to ever speak in front of a black audience and ask for their support for the nomination. He does this a year and a half before in Savannah, Georgia. So he's not hes not a Confederate in, you know, sort of in, in, in a blue uniform. No, no, no. I thought that actually was the example you were yeah. going to cite or standing up to the American Protective Association and defending immigration in yeah. the United States. This for a party that had been pretty much associated with white Protestantism. Yeah, and he's the first Republican presidential candidate to ever be endorsed by a member of the Catholic hierarchy. And the reason is because he has demonstrated consistently throughout his life open support for black equality, an an attitude of broad-mindedness with regard to religion and national origin. He is welcoming of immigrants, and he has taken steps to defend Catholics against attacks by anti-immigrationists. 
And so it's not just one speech. It's not just one action. It is a lifetime lived in a way that says to people, these are deep and uh, consistent patterns uh, that I find attractive in, in my president. And McKinley brought this to the White House. We forget that he was one of the most popular men to ever occupy the Oval Office. After him, for 36 years, the Republicans are the dominant party in America, not just in the Congress and the Senate and the House and in governorships, but even you know most of the major cities in the North have Republican mayors between 1896 and the early 1930s. Now I want to turn to your own use of history in your work as a political advisor. Now, you're generally seen as somebody who has a reputation for winning at any cost. And I think about 19th century politics, the very kind of politics you write about in McKinley's era. Do you think your knowledge of history has influenced your own approach to, you know, tough politics? In the 19th century, uh, this was called militarized politics. I mean, it was another form of war. Yeah. Have you brought that to modern American politics? Well, I think it's always been there. I, I don't accept the win at all costs uh, mantra, but I recognize my adversaries uh, say that, but uh, nothing I can do about that. But uh, look, I think that there are things in politics that are over the top, that are fundamentally wrong, and that the, w- the way that those things generally get handled is people uh, react adversely to them. When did you get interested politics. Were you born interested in politics, Carl? I I was. And uh, (laughs) I can't remember a point at which I wasn't, and which is really weird because I come from a very apolitical family. My my father never told me how he voted until he was in his uh, 70s. Really? And uh, we never talked politics around the family dinner table. So how do you explain that? I, I don't. My mother was completely apolitical. She voted Republican in one election because I was working in a Republican campaign, voted the straight Republican ballot. In the next election, she voted for the Peace and Freedom Party ballot because my older brother was supporting Eldridge Cleaver for president. I'm guessing you weren't working for that campaign, Carl. No, I wasn't. Okay. I grew up in the West, which means that, you know, if you grow up in the Mountain West, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah, there's a tendency to be conservative because the Washington seems far away and freedom seems to be really important. Individual responsibility is prized. Uh, You know, those, those sort of old Western values, really, there is something to them. We'll return to my conversation with Karl Rove in a moment. But first, this quick message. You got your start uh, in Texas politics in fundraising through direct mail. And now we're going to go nerd to nerd. I just love direct mail. Can you explain to our listeners how something as humble as the snail mail letter really kind of revolutionized politics in that era? Well, before direct mail, campaigns relied upon fundraisers. That is to say, you know, a check writer who could call up other people and get them to write checks. And then along comes direct mail, which starts with lists. Uh, And the lists have to be lists of people who have done something through the mail, whether it's subscribing to a magazine or making a purchase or Or writing a check. Or their membership card at the golf club, whatever. Right. 
if you're a Republican, you want lists that lean conservative. If you're a Democrat, you want lists that, live, that lean liberal. So like for Republicans, if you could get a list of people who gave to an anti-tax group or gave to a conservative think tank or gave to a pro-Second Amendment group, that's the kind of people you're going for. What's one of the first lists where you said to yourself, this is gold? Well, it was actually people who had given to uh, Republican candidates and causes uh, but had not been asked for, uh, for for contributions to the – in this case, the Republican Party of Virginia, which is what I first – where I first got thrown into the direct mail business. When I started in Texas, I did the mail for Governor Bill Clements who would gotten elected in 1978 largely by accident, first Republican governor in over a century in Texas. And I got to you know mail – people who subscribe to Texas Monthly and people who subscribe to conservative journals. And yeah, it generated enormous sums of money. Yeah. And how is that? I always throw that stuff out, to be honest. Well, you can make lots of money by having, you know, 2% or 3% or 4% or 5% respond. You can make enormous sums of money. And particularly if you tailor your list of people who have donated, like when Bush ran for president, we had a vast list of people who had contributed to him and to other candidates before. So of of the people who had contributed to him before, a quarter of them responded. So if you have three or 400,000 of those people and you have 100,000 of them send you back 50 bucks, suddenly you're looking at big chunks of money. So when you see all of these excited headlines about targeting and narrow casting and big data through computers, do you kind of feel like, hey, I was doing that back in the 1970s? Well, in the 1980s, I remember in 1980, we did a, this effort uh, in Kit Bond's race for the U.S. Senate. Missouri. In Missouri, yeah, where we literally isolated universes of people based on on, on, on precinct data uh, that we thought had areas of high swing votes and called and asked them three questions about their views on things. Today, you can collect, you know, seven or 800 pieces of information about each one of those people that allow you to, in essence, answer those questions without ever having to pick up a phone and call right. them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I must admit I'm a big advocate of data. And the firm that I had here in Texas, I mean, by, by 1998, Bush's reelection campaign for governor, we had 20 years of phone bank data on voters in Texas. So we could literally say, here's somebody who votes in the local Democratic primary but supports Republicans in a general election. Here's a person who splits their ticket, votes for some Republicans and some Democrats. Here's somebody who's strongly – they don't vote in either primary, but they're strongly Republican or they're strongly Democrat. So you know, it, it, uh, having the, the ability to have 20 years of election data where every election cycle from 1978 through 1996, you have phone, phone bank results involving millions of answers across the state of Texas – pretty amazing uh, database. When did you first meet George W. Bush? And what did you think of him? Well, I, I, I was working for his pop. His dad was the Republican national chairman. I'd been elected national college chairman in July. And what year I, is this? 1973. Okay. By October, I was, I'd been offered a job by the senior Bush working for him. And then just before Thanksgiving of 1973, I'm 22 years old, I get a call from my boss, the chief of staff, Tom Lass, and Mr. Lass says, um, the chairman's going to be at the White House tomorrow. I'm going to be at meetings on the Hill. His son, his oldest son, W, is coming down from Harvard where he was at Harvard Business School, and he'll call when he gets to the train station, and you meet him in the lobby and give him the keys to the family car. <laughs> this is before cell phones, obviously. So 
George W. Bush, who's, who's driving a red used sports car around Harvard Yard. So he gets down to the Union Station. It's the day before Thanksgiving. So I go down, a complete nerd, and in walks this guy wearing an Air National Guard flight jacket, cowboy boots, uh, blue jeans, and in the back pocket, <laughs> there was sort of a round, something where you'd put it between the cheek and the gum, if you get my drift. So you're anyway, talking he about comes chewing tobacco. In. Exactly. So he walks in, exuding more charisma than a human being should have. And here's the little nerd with the keys to the family car, which I point out to him is out front. It is the purple gremlin with Levi Strauss interior, about the ugliest car you have ever seen. It was the modern-day version of an Edsel, in other words. It helped bring about the demise of the of exactly. American motors. And so George W. Bush is not very impressed with his father's choice <laughs> in cars. And that was how we met. Well, you know, I actually was a classmate of Jeb Bush in high school. And I went through high school hearing that Jeb was the smart one in a reference to Jeb versus W. Yet W went on to be president of the United States Jeb was, I think, an effective governor, but uh, his run for president was not terribly successful. I want you to talk to me about the two Bush brothers. Why was W so successful and why, at least to date, has Jeb been less successful in his presidential ambitions? Um, Jeb is the more intellectual of the two, and his brother has the somewhat better people skills. But if... Jeb had won the governorship of Florida in 1994, and George W. Bush had lost the governorship of Texas in that year rather than vice versa. Mm -hmm. History might have turned out differently. But so you're saying that timing is very important. Yeah. But both of them ran against incumbent governors. Yep. And in 1994 in, in Texas, George W. Bush won and Jeb lost. And if you listen to Jeb's explanation of why he thought he lost and how he ran differently four years later – this shows a really intelligent person who's capable of self-reflection, which a lot of people in politics are not capable of. And he realized that his tone was angry and divisive, and then he needed to find a way to emphasize things that united Floridians rather than divided them, that he had a, he had a hard edge and that he needed to find a way to soften that edge and to find a way to bring people together, which is exactly what he did by 1998. And you said he was an effective governor. He is one of the great governors of any major state in the union in the modern era. Yet that all translated into the jibe, low-energy Jeb. Is Jeb maybe too self-reflective for No, look, I, 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 think, I think this is more – the last time Jeb Bush had a competitive race was 2002, 14 years before the 2016 election. And, you know, it's always easy to go back and say we do things differently and there there would be things that I think he would do differently. There would be things that I'd do differently. But part of it was just frankly that it was not his moment. Yeah. There are political muscles that you exercise. I mean Bush was – his brother, 43, was helped by the fact that he'd run in 94 and won and run in 98 and won. And then that helped him run in 2000. There was only a two-year gap between the 98 election. There was momentum, and, you're saying. It was muscle memory. Yeah. He knew how to do it. Muscle and memory. Jeb had had uh, – last race was 2002. He'd left office in 2000, January of 2007. And he'd had an, you know, an interesting life in between. But you know, politics is a demanding profession. And you, you know, if, if you get out of practice, you get out of practice.
The Republican Party of 2016 really doesn't show much of the compassionate conservatism of the W. Bush years. What happened since the Bush administration? Well, look, I think I think we're going through a populist moment in America. And it's what's interesting to me is in 19, excuse me, 2016, you have two populist candidates, one Republican and one Democrat. Both of them get roughly 46% of the vote in their respective primaries. Bernie Sanders for the Democrats, Donald J. Trump for the Republicans. But we're going through a populist moment in America and in, in, in Western democracies. I think that faith in our traditional forms of government and in the traditional political parties have been undermined, as have so many other things, by a rapidly changing world. Let me press you on this. You actually subscribe to this political science theory that there are critical elections that reshape politics for decades. 1896 was one, uh, 1932 or 1936, take your choice, but the Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt rise. Do you think that this most recent election is a critical election or is going to go on to reshape politics in the future? No. One of the key ingredients of a of an election, a realigning election, is an election in which the country gets united behind the new coalition. You know, it's not an accident that in 1800, in his inaugural address, Thomas Jefferson says, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. I mean, he was attempting to unify the country. 1860, read the inaugural address, first and second of Abraham Lincoln. He clearly was attempting to unite the country in in facing the deepest division that we've ever faced as a country, that over slavery. Read the optimism of 1932. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And 1896, the entire campaign's close in October is designed by McKinley to be a message of unity. There's a unity of North and South with, a, with the first visit by a Confederate delegation of veterans to a Republican presidential candidate. There's a unity in the country in of all kinds of different demographic groups, of all kinds of occupational groups, of workers and capital together, marching in support of a unified vision of the future. So this election is a, it was a divisive election, and there was a moment for the new president to strike in his inaugural, uh, this this note of unity. Yes, but it didn't happen, and it happened in his uh, in his in his uh, address to Congress, but it hasn't happened much since then, and and little before then. Well, one of the other parallels uh, between today and uh, the 1890s, really the late 19th century, is the partisanship of the media. How do you explain the rise of this uh, partisan press? It seems like uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, the media was far less partisan. You couldn't turn on ABC or CBS and say, that's a Republican station, that's a Democratic station. Now, you know, you, you get you, if you're a liberal, you go to MSNBC. If you're a conservative, you go to Fox. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's we're going through a disruptive phase. You're right. We, we've had a partisan press for most of our history. You go back to the I 1800s. Agree. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. Again, it's there through the 1900s, the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s. But in the 40s and 50s, we begin to have these sort of national voices of unity in ABC, CBS, and NBC. 
But look, we're going through a disruptive phase in the media, the growth of social media. Sure. Sure. Of websites, of of cable TV. We're sorting ourselves in our sources of information, much like we're sorting ourselves in the places that we live. Conservatives tend to live in places yep. that are, you know, more amenable to conservatives and liberals tend to move towards places that are more, you know, Portland is more attractive for a liberal to go to in San Francisco and, and Dallas and Houston and Fort Worth are more attractive for conservatives. So, you know, we're sorting ourselves in our media sources and but but our media is undergoing a serious disruption, as are most institutions in our society. I mean, that's the thing is that this populist moment is, I think, in part a result of people being concerned about, anxious about the future of the country because their trust in the institutions of our country are diminishing. I think that's absolutely right. Carl, you spent a lot of your life raising money, raising large amounts of money, many would say it's one of your sources of power. Uh, Most would say, you know, so is the fact that you're a very smart guy and um, really the premier political strategist of of your generation. But on the money front, I want to know what Trump's victory means, spending a lot less money than Hillary Clinton. Are things changing in terms of the calculus of money? I would say this. You're right. Trump didn't spend as much money. The Republican National Committee spent a significant sum of money and spent it wisely. The Democratic National Committee spent a bunch of money and spent it not so wisely. And Hillary Clinton had a vast sum of money that she spent badly. I mean, I remember picking up in October an article where – some people in Michigan, Democrats in Michigan, were, say, were, were up in revolt. They were saying, Michigan is a tight race. Why are we being asked to send our volunteers to Iowa? Yeah. And, and, and when we complained to the Clinton campaign that we think they ought to remain in Michigan and work Michigan, we're told, no, they must get on the buses and go to Iowa. Well, Iowa was lost. Michigan was not. And think about it. If Hillary Clinton had not diverted those volunteers from Michigan— she loses Michigan by 11,000 votes yeah. out of over 4 million votes cast. And I think they ran one of the worst campaigns I've ever seen in a presidential level. And they had more resources than God. I understand what you're saying, but you don't think there was something about Trump's use of social media, his ability to garner free publicity that has changed yeah. the calculus oh, no, no, permanently? Absolutely. absolutely. Talk to me about that, if you don't mind. Yeah. Look, I mean, he he ran the largest newspaper in America during the course of the campaign. The only problem was the articles had to be 140 characters or less. <laughs> and he, after wasting much of the late spring and the, and the summer, I mean, he gives a speech in early June in which he says, I'm going to focus my campaign on 15 battleground states, and I'm going to describe them to you over the course of the coming weeks. But I'll tell you, three of them today, they're going to be New York, Oregon, and California. This had come after, frankly, a meeting that I'd had with him and another person for three and a half hours in which he raised this idea of campaigning for and targeting Oregon, New York, and California. And I told him it was nuts. But by the end of July and into August, Reince Priebus, Kellyanne Conway, and others had gotten him off of this sort of quixotic idea that he could somehow win New York and California, and it focused him on Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and 
Ohio and Florida and North Carolina and Michigan, and it paid off. He won three states by less than a percentage point, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And if he had lost Pennsylvania or lost the other two, he would have he would not be president. Right. Were you ever tempted to work for the Trump campaign? Or no. would you accept the position in the Trump administration? He, he made clear what he thought of me very early on in speeches that he gave in Texas. So I had no interest in and no expectation. What did he say about you? Oh, he just, he just trashed my sorry posterior up one side <laughs> and down the other for about 20 minutes. Honestly, Carl Rove. No, he's terrible. He's terrible. He's terrible. The last presidential election, he raised $434 million and didn't win one race. Can you believe that? So Carl Rove, I think the guy is a total incompetent jerk. But him and And that's it. So you would not consider working in the Trump administration? Look, I've done it twice for somebody that I deeply believe in and cared about and felt was great for the country. That's Mm -hmm. that's enough. Should Trump be worried about Steve Bannon now that he's out of the White House? No. Why should he not worry about Steve Bannon? Bannon has retreated to the leadership of the 224th largest website in America. And it, when Bannon left, it was one of the most unbelievably arrogant and self-centered interviews I've ever seen. I'm leaving the White House, so therefore, quote, the Trump presidency is over and everything gets harder from here on. But I'm returning to the to, to Breitbart. Uh, we're going to, quote, bury the opposition. I built a blanking machine. Well, last year they took on Paul Ryan in his primary, recruited an opponent for him, unleashed Breitbart on, on Paul Ryan every single day, beat him up every way they could, served as a fundraising arm for the first primary challengers campaign, and Paul Ryan got 84% of the vote. So I think President Trump, if he's sitting there cowering in the Oval Office out of fear of what Steve Bannon could or do to him, is making a grave error. So given your emphasis on a president that can unite the country and the, the fact that we have a president right now who is not generally seen as doing that, what advice would you give to a candidate running against President Trump? Every election is in some degree a reaction to the last election. And in the next election, I think that both parties are going to strive to have candidates who can be uniters, not dividers, people who can reach across party lines, people who have a sense of who they are that causes people to say, you know what, they may not be my my choice, but the country will be okay. Do you ever get tired of politics? And what do you do to get away from it? I read about politics. That's not getting away from it, Carl. That's enough. You've got to do something that isn't politics. Do you do anything that isn't politics? Yeah, I'm a bird hunter and I'm a philatelist. I'm an open, practicing, acknowledged philatelist. I'm a stamp collector, as was my father and my grandfather. Looking back at your own political career, what what would you do differently? The best advice I ever got about politics, which I wish I had listened to more than I had, I had a friend who, at College Republicans who teaches at Elon in North Carolina. Sure. Sure. He said, your ability to be effective in politics is in a direct relationship to your ability to say no. 
<laughs> and he said, your ability to say no is in an inverse relationship to how much money you need to derive from politics. <laughs> and I wish there were a couple of clients that I had that I took on because it was financially necessary yeah. that I wish in retrospect I hadn't. But that's that's relatively minor, I suspect, in the scale of things. That's fair. Uh, last question. If you were speaking to my history class, this is a bunch of undergraduates – what would you tell them about using their knowledge of history to affect political change? Well, history is a great guide. It's not a, it's not a precise guide. But history is a guide to what is possible and what is not, to what is consequential and what is not. And it's also a guide to how things can turn out in an unexpected way. We make a mistake by calling it political science. I'm glad we just call it history, not you know, historical science, uh, because nothing works exactly in that precise way that you you have in a say a chemical reaction. Uh, you can you can take a certain number of chemicals and add them in a certain way a thousand times, and the outcome will always be the same. Not so with history. Carl Rove is the author of The Triumph of William McKinley. Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. He's also a Republican political strategist and a commentator on Fox News and a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Diana Williams is our digital editor. And Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Pottington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. <laughs>